All right, tonight, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, please. It's a mountaintop message, according to the Bible. And uh, my, my wife, uh, Lois, she, um, she is Olympic gold medalist quality Christmas shopper. She's, uh, she's one of the best. And uh, I got these hiking shoes about 12, 13 years ago. And um, I was wearing them on early, a week before Christmas, doing a little uh, last-minute Christmas shopping, which is how we do all of our Christmas shopping. And uh, she was dispatching me with a cell phone, you know. Uh, and um, my, my hiking shoes blew out, and I'm not kidding. I mean, they're seriously, my, the Christmas shopping this year blew out my, my hiking shoes completely. Chris, not Algonquin, the mall, where it was the end of my, my hiking shoes. So I dropped a broad hint to my kids about a Christmas present. They got me new hiking shoes. Uh, I like to hike. Um, one of the things that's, uh, that I do is when I'm in a boring place, I walk really fast. And then when I'm in a really, really, really beautiful place, I slow way down. And we are in a really, really beautiful place of the Scripture when we have arrived at this uh, this uh, escarpment of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like stop here and stand still and suck in your breath and learn something about God. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. And so I hope you'll forgive me for my sloppy, uh, my sloppy um, phrasing here this morning, kind of not getting my whole message done. Glad you came back. Talk a little, to you a little bit here real quickly before we move on about what it's like to study on the mountaintop. We study on the mountaintop because a mountaintop is a place to get new, accurate perspective. I think this was true about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It was a place for people to get better perspective. You climb up high. You see things better. I think that's a, a bit of a spiritualization, but symbolically true about what Jesus was doing when he had people get a different perspective, a higher perspective. And this is what we ought to do as we approach the Scriptures, is God, give me a view of this from a different angle, from a higher angle, so that I can see things that I, I didn't see before. Quiet my heart and, and cause me to have reverence for your word. I watched, a, 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 I watched an online streaming of a youth conference, the Passion Conference in, um, in Atlanta this week. I watched a few sessions of that because I just love watching a place where there are tens of thousands of, of college students that are seeking God. And at the end of one of the sessions, I noticed they said, now they're in downtown Atlanta, and there are tens of thousands of college students there uh, seeking God. And, and, they, and the, the guy that's leading it, at the end, he says, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to walk back to where you're staying now silently. And I'd like you to just think about the things that you've learned today without talking to one another. And, and I thought to myself, can you imagine tens of thousands of crazy college students actually doing that? And if you, if you go log in on your, your computer and you look, you'll see there's a video there on YouTube of thousands of young people in the streets of Atlanta at night, silently walking back, thinking about the things of the Lord. I speak at a camp up north, and they have a, they have a little habit. They have a little uh, custom. At the end of the night, what they do is, after the speaker is finished, they, they release their cabins one at a time. And they have them, and they instruct them not to talk to one another, but only to walk out of the chapel and out through the night and to listen to the voice of God. And tonight, I, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have that kind 
of quietness and perspective in our souls. We listen to what God has to say and then just quietly savor it. And we say to God, teach me through your word. Help me to see a new perspective. A mountaintop is a place to get a better perspective. It's also a place for undistracted reflection. And I really do think this is one of the, one of the things that happened is Jesus took the people out to a place on a mountain because there was a place for undistracted uh, reflection. Quietness is a part of spiritual growth. New perspective is important. Quietness, uh, simplicity, silence. I'm, I'm kind of coaching you. It's the early part of the year. And I know that you're all eager to grow spiritually just like I am. And remember that a big part of that is just silence. This is quietness. It's just being alone with the Lord. I'm kind of a talker. You, you may know that. Um, so in the absence of anything else, I just talk and fill in the gaps. If you and I have a conversation, I'll, I'll be having to check that. You know, just if you don't talk, I'll feel like I need to talk. Now you can criticize me if you want to about that. But anyway, that's the way I am. And I'm that way with God. As if the God of the universe needs to hear me just kind of babble on all the time. And it's like, okay, here I am for my prayer time. And I'm just And I think that the older I get, the more I like to just sit quietly before the Lord and listen for His voice. And though He amazingly is interested in hearing my voice, this is an amazing thing. But a mountaintop is a place for undistracted reflection. Jesus wanted his people. This part of learning, he said um, in Matthew 11, later in the, in, the, in the gospel here, in Matthew chapter 11, he's going to say that. He's going to say, if you want to learn of me, then you have to, be, you have to take this light yoke upon you and, and learn of me. Uh, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And Jesus did that often. Jesus went alone often. And so, again, I'm just reminding you, as we think about Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus, the wilderness was a common place for him. Listen, here we go on a little uh, quick uh, flyover of some passages in just taking Jesus' devotional life in the book of Luke. Are you ready? Luke 4, 42. You've got to listen really fast to this. Now, when it was day, he departed and he went to a deserted place. Luke 5, 16. He also withdrew into the wilderness and he prayed. Luke 6, verse 12. Came to pass in those days he went out to the mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. Luke 9, 28. Came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and he went up to the mountain to pray. Luke 11 and verse 1. Came to pass when he was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And when Jesus was... um, When they were looking for Jesus and trying to figure out where he was, it says in John chapter 8 and verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often went there with his disciples. It was Jesus' habit to go out into the mountaintops and into the wilderness places and to be quiet and to pray. And if Jesus prayed, then we sure ought to pray. And so a mountaintop is a place for a a new perspective, a new way of looking at things. And Jesus wanted his disciples and the multitudes that came to take a fresh look at the law, a fresh look at what righteousness was, a fresh look at what the kingdom was. And the mountaintop is a place for undistracted reflection. You notice this too, the people to get to where Jesus was, it would have taken some effort on their part. No taxi. Um, one of the places, Horns of Hatton, where this might have happened, beautiful place there. If you look that up, and if, if this, this place, until just recently, they say you can, you can take a, uh, a bus up to within about a 15-minute walk, and then you can walk 15 minutes to get there. But I'm sure there was no bus when Jesus was there. And if that's where he spoke, the people had quite a hike to get to where he was speaking. He didn't make it all convenient for them. It's interesting. 
And I think that's true. If you notice that it's true that a master teacher requires something of you. A master teacher requires something of you. Matter of fact, I think I have a little slide. This is a master teacher. You see what he has in his hand there? That's a fly rod. It's a bamboo fly rod. That fly rod is a $1,000 to $1,500 fly rod. Good thing is if you close that in your car door, he's the one who made it. He will replace it free of charge. And it's common for people to close them in their car doors, by the way. Wes Cooper is his name. 12, 14 years ago on a Sunday night like this, he might have come in to hear me preach. He went elsewhere to church. We had Sunday night services. He loved the Lord. He was a school teacher and a master craftsman, devoted Christian. He would come in quietly and he would sit, listen to my messages. He's a seasoned guy. He'd, he'd heard it all before. And when my, my oldest son wanted to learn to fly fish, somebody in the church said, hey, go have him ask Wes Cooper. And so Wes Cooper taught uh, him the fly fish. He actually, he actually took him out on the river a number of times. He, you know you're really close with somebody. When, Jeff, am I right about this? When they show you their secret fishing holes. Would you do that for me, Jeff? Would you take me to your secret? I knew you would. I just knew that. And uh, kind of guy like Jeff. You want to get around him, he'll show you how to fish. Now he's going to be mad at me for saying that, aren't you, Jeff? It's like, well, then again, you can quit your day job and you can just be an outfitter and take people fishing. What do you think? Wes Cooper built these beautiful things. He was a master craftsman. He's a master teacher. I told Kyle, I said, get a notebook, hang on his every word, write stuff down, and the guy will just tell you everything he knows. Because that's the way a master teacher is. Give give us a, a young man, a young woman who's an eager learner, somebody that really respects the teacher and who's willing to sacrifice. And that master teacher will open that treasure of his experience and the treasure of his heart or her heart and will give you everything that they know. Jesus, the master teacher, he, he, he had no time for triflers. He had hard messages and he had hard invitations and he sent large crowds of people away. I hope none of us that are gathered here tonight would, would go away and not be willing to pay the price that's necessary. Uh, sometimes old people, can I say it that way? Older people, elderly people are like this. They've been around. They know that mostly people don't really care what they think or what they say. So they don't say too much. There was a guy in our church named Bob Hoff, Robert Hoff. His wife, Ruth, godly lady, more outgoing. Robert was very quiet. Visited their home a few times. This was many, many years ago. Visited their home a few times. When we left to go to another church, they invited us over for dinner. And that particular night, I happened to strike up a conversation with Bob when his wife was out of the room. And I started asking him questions. And we crossed that little line that you do with elderly people sometimes between, are you just here to be nice or do you really want to talk to me? We crossed that, do you really want to talk to me line. And Bob Hoff revealed to me that he was, I think, a B-17 or B-29 which is the flying fortress? Are they both flying fortresses? Help me with this. Come on, I know. 29 is the flying fortress. He was a bomber pilot in World War II. A pilot. Flown missions, had things to say, had stories to tell. But he wasn't going to tell me any of it until I got quiet and I stopped talking and I started asking him questions and he could see that my eyes lit up and then he had stories to tell. Jesus, the master storyteller. Jesus, the master prayer. Jesus, the master teacher. Jesus, the miracle-working God. 
he, he, doesn't, he doesn't open the treasures of his truth to triflers, but to people that are willing to pay the price. And so that, that's the mountain. The mountaintop is a place where we can go to show that we're willing to pay the price to learn. Now, some basic observations. This is a re- repetition of this morning. And But in case I didn't make it clear, quickly, let me show you what. These are some things I said this morning, okay? God wants you to be happy, but I'm talking about really happy. And happy is not really the right word to use because the happy, really, the, the etymology of it, the happy has to do with happenings. It really does. So happy is like circumstantial joy. God wants you to be blessed happy. We talked about that this morning. He wants that, and we know that from the text, right? Blessed, 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 blessed. But the way of happiness is counterintuitive. The way of happiness is countercultural. It's not what you would think. It's not what you've been taught. That's why the Beatitudes come, fall out the way they do. And happiness and holiness cannot be separated. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching, that the key to blessedness and real righteousness are the same thing. To have real righteousness is to be genuinely blessed, but you can't be genuinely blessed unless you have real, real righteousness. They can't be separated. They, they go together. So we want to talk tonight about kingdom righteousness, and in order to help you to organize your thoughts, because I know the human mind craves order, I'm going to give you a three-point outline. Not I've already been through 12 or 14 points, right? I'm going to give you three more points, okay? I ain't promising you they, there aren't sub-points, but these are the three points, all right? Take a look at them. It's not getting what I want, but doing what God wants me to do. That is kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness is not getting what I want, getting God on my side to get stuff done for me that I want him to do for me. It's me submitting to God knowing that what he has to say is best. Kingdom righteousness is not human effort, but divine enablement. These are going to fall directly out of the text of the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm just telling you ahead of time so that you kind of know where I'm going. When you hear it, you'll go, ah, I get it now. Kingdom righteousness is not human effort. It's not just human effort alone, but it's divine enablement. We'll we'll give you some detail about that in a moment. And, And kingdom righteousness is not just listening and making shallow promises, saying things after you've heard. It's it's practicing holiness. And we know that there are different levels of different kinds of holiness, if you will. So now let's go back and talk about this first one here. That's kind of what we're doing tonight, and it shouldn't take more than a few hours to do that. In a general sense, his kingdom is his kingship. It's his rule. It's his recognized sovereignty. In a general sense, when you see the term used sometimes in Scripture, that's what it's referring to, the, the, the general spiritual rule of God, the sovereignty of God, and my submission to the sovereignty of God. And sometimes the word, the, the idea or the concept of kingdom is used to mean that in the Bible. And other times it's used to mean a literal and specific time of a specific amount of time. And just to know which is which, you need to carefully study the context. We know that the Bible often speaks of the kingdom, not maybe the ultimate and full kingdom, but the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy kingdom to be a thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. I I used to say that's the full and final fulfillment of the kingdom, but I don't really think that's the right way to say it. Because if we... That certainly is the most common, uh, specific, and literal... uh, designation for the kingdom is the millennial reign of Christ, but would we, but, but is it, would it be accurate to say that's the full and final fulfillment of the reign of God on the earth? No. 
Because we know, if we study the Bible, there's still a kind of a seed of rebellion that kind of boils up at the end of the millennial reign. And then he's going to put that down. Matter of fact, let's just take time to take your Bible and look at 1 Corinthians 15. And I think you'll see that there's something beyond that and something ultimate. And that is really the reign of, of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he's talking about Jesus' uh, death, his conquering death, and his rising from the dead and becoming the first fruits of those uh, who had fallen asleep. First uh, Corinthians 15. Let's go from verse 20. And now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And we can go on beyond that, talking about the recreation, the eternal state. I don't know if I made this really clear this morning, but if you think about the Beatitudes, and let's say that you're born again, you know the Lord is your Savior, and then the Holy Spirit's working in your life, and so the process of sanctification is taking place in your life, and so these qualities that are in the Beatitudes start surfacing in your life, the righteousness of Christ, likeness of Christ begins to surface in your life, then wherever that happens, you have a touchdown of the, of the kingdom there, a recreation of Christ's rule in that area of your life. You have a, a little microcosm of God's ultimate kingdom where He will completely destroy all His enemies and, and completely reign. And he said, that's why a little later on He's going to coach His disciples to pray and He's going to say, pray for the kingdom to come on the earth. Thy kingdom come and Thy will be done. And uh, now listen, uh, there is a present aspect of the kingdom, is what I'm trying to say. And there's a future aspect. His kingdom is now primarily spiritual in nature. I listened to a good message by Jeff Mannion on this, and I want, to, I want to quote something that just jumped out to me when he said it, and I think it's helpful for you to hear. He said this, At its core, Christianity is not a collection of self-righteous people who form a voting block in order to get evil people to be good. The bear's repeating. At its core, Christianity is not a collection or an assembly of self-righteous people who form a voting block in order to get evil people to be good. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. He said at its core, Christianity is about people who are, in fellow, who are in the fellowship of the poor, of the grieving, of the meek, of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, of the peacemakers, of the pure in heart, of those who are persecuted for doing right. At its core, that's what we are, the kind of people who embody those things. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He answers and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, you're familiar with this. We quoted it last week. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. We generally take these as synonymous with salvation, these, these phrases. John 18:36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So that I should be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. 
So this is, uh, these are references to the spiritual reign of Christ, which is sometimes called the kingdom in that sense. Romans fourteen seventeen for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there is a sense in which the church is a part of the kingdom. You're probably thinking, is this man a dispensationalist? Sure, I am. We see that that kingdom age is a separate and distinct dispensation where Jesus is dealing, in, God is dealing in particular in a Jewish way with Jewish people. But, the, but in a general sense, the church is a part of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 16, it's used this way in the scripture. Matthew 16, 18 and 19, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You're using, the, you're using those terms together. Colossians 1.13, He's delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. There's a reference to what happens to us when we got saved. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12, that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And so in the general sense, you're in the church, you're in the kingdom of God. You're within the rule and the reign and the authority and the sovereignty of God. In Revelation 1 and verse 4 and 6 and 9, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits who are before his throne and has made us kings, verse 6, he has made us kings and priests to God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Again, regal, royal, kingdom language here. John, verse 9. This is Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother, companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. When was, when was he there? Church age. Luke uh, 17, 20 and 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So there are these references to a spiritual aspect of the kingdom, a contemporary aspect of the kingdom, a church included in the kingdom. Make sense? But then there is the future, and I, I don't mean to overstate this, it's just... Well, I guess how could you overstate the kingdom of Jesus, right? So let's look at this. The millennial reign of Christ is physical. It's literal. Jesus is literally on a throne on earth. And even though the kingdom has a literal fulfillment, which is yet future, the principles of the kingdom, they apply to us today. And this may be where, it, again, the use of the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, one, the use of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is saying to people who have distorted the law, and have kind of taken the teeth out of the law. He's putting the teeth back in the law by revealing the absolute holy character of God. And so they're now a person who has been so prepared is prepared for the gospel then at that point. And, and uh, let me just tell you some, uh, for a believer, what would the use of this be? Well, you probably know this because you're, most of you are believers, so you read that Sermon on the Mount. You don't just go, well, that's not for me. It's for some other time or somebody else. No, you read that for your personal edification, and you ought to read that for your personal edification. And I will prove that to you from the Bible here just in a moment. But like in a simple way, look at it like this. Sermon on the Mount is good for at least two things. One, to get an unbeliever to see that he has no hope outside of Christ. His own personal righteousness isn't going to work. Lay the law on him. And to get a believer to see there's no hope for sanctification without the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's to bring us to the end of ourselves and to throw us 
upon the Lord. So for those things, it's good. It also reveals the character of God and the things that he believes are right. Look through the Sermon on the Mount and look at the topic headings. If your Bible has one of those, you know, it's kind of broken into paragraphs and has topic headings. I, I will tell you how I arrived at this series. I, I, a, a number of months ago, I was praying and I was thinking, what, it, what should God's people at Evangel hear? What kinds of things should I, should I teach them? I made a long list of things that I think I ought to teach. And then I thought, how would I do that? Would I arrange them into, you know, topical series or how? And then I realized, look at all those things. Jesus dealt with them in the sermon. Every one of those things he dealt with in the sermon out, we'll just preach through the book of Matthew. And we'll hit all of those things. And every the very things that wring the human breast, the aspirations and the hopes and dreams and the difficulties and the hardships and the fears of every human being are touched on in this masterful sermon by this master teacher, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So... They're very practicable to us. We know they apply to us today because each one of them has an Old Testament foundation. Every one of the Beatitudes and every topic in the Sermon on the Mount has an Old Testament foundation. And to understand them, you want to go to the Old Testament and understand their Old Testament introduction. And every single one of them is repeated in sometimes almost the exact same phrases in the epistles. So we know that they apply to us today, no matter how dispensational that you are. And then they awaken for us a longing for the renewal of all things. This is something I, I really long to help to, to kind of remind you about or to, or to stir up your heart about. The, the, okay, if we're looking at the kingdom and the kingdom principles and what kingdom righteousness is like, and we have a current aspect of that, and we have a progressive aspect of that, and we have a future and ultimate and complete aspect of Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness that we are going to look forward to, that should make us really long to be there and to, and to enjoy that and to think that way and to live that way. We should have that kind of a, an attitude. And so when we study this and we look at these are the principles of the king and the kingdom, they should make us long for eternity and a time when Jesus is unrivaled in his, in his manifestation of his rule. Jesus is today unrivaled in his rule. Today. But there will be a time when he displays and he manifests that and he puts down all his enemies. And that should be a time that we long for and we often think of the time that it comforts us when we grieve over our own sin and the sin that we see all around us, the horrors that we see every night in the news. It's almost like you don't mention them anymore because they happen so often. And even yesterday, this terrible bloodbath in, in Arizona, that just ought to grieve godly people to see that we live in a nation where these kinds of things are becoming so common. It ought to cause us to long for a day when the Lord Jesus brings peace to the entire earth what a time that will be it's interesting i wouldn't want to endorse everything he said but c.s lewis wrote about this and i want you to hear this part in mere christianity and in this lecture that he did called the weight of glory pretty common to hear these quotations in this context i think they're helpful to you if we find ourselves he says with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world in other words, he's saying you have inclinations and longings and desires that are never satisfied in this world. And his suggestion philosophically is that you must have been made for another world. He must have put an appetite in you that's not going to be fulfilled here. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pro- pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or, or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else, of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive within myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. 
We look at the Sermon on the Mount and we see a foreshadowing of a wonderful time that's going to come. <laughs> it, should, it should stir our hearts. For It should say that's that longing that you've always had that nobody's going to come out with an album to satisfy and nobody's going to mix a drink to satisfy and no, er, no worldly behavior, no sinful behavior will ever satisfy what only God can give. And is it the longing that He put within us? And in the weight of glory, He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You've heard that before, but that bears repeating, doesn't it? Amen. So, First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. Hear this now, and this is probably the synchronon. This is the greatest argument there is for us obeying the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus said them. Listen to what the Bible says about the commands of Jesus. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3 says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine of the courts of godliness, is given a great warning. Don't listen to somebody who comes in and he distorts the words of Jesus Christ. The words of Jesus Christ are to be honored, to be revered, to be, to be understood, to, obe- to be obeyed. And when this book, uh, this book of Matthew, comes to a close, Matthew 28, and we have that, what we call the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what do we do then? Teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. Well, what was that? What, what body of truth was that? It's what Jesus taught with His mouth, with His lips, what He said. The commands of Jesus Christ are central. They're primary. And Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So to summarize, the Sermon on the Mount is a test pattern of true righteousness. It's important because we live in a, in a superficial age that justifies its lack of spiritual vitality by comparison to a low standard. Years ago, I read uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount, Peace of Work, people. Warren Wiersbe said he read it on his knees, weeping most of the time. The very sermon itself, you should read it over and over again. I was reading this book, and he said this, and I borrowed the phrase from him. We live in a superficial age that justifies its lack of spiritual vitality by comparison to a low standard. Guy's been dead for a long time. I mean, not a long, long, long time, but decades. He's been off the scene for a few decades, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we li- he says, the reason people pestered me to put these messages into print is because we live in a superficial age that satisfies itself by comparing itself to a low standard. That is true. So how do we raise that standard, break our hearts, drive ourselves to the cross? Well, we read the Sermon on the Mount and we, rec- we, don't, we don't recognize our reflection in it. And then that's what happens. Does it make sense? So then we live in a time when millions talk about Jesus with some kind of respect. Or maybe they say they're Christians or they say they're followers of Jesus. Or can I say it this way? On their Facebook, you look down and it says, above all the junk that they listen to and the stuff they drink and they carry on that they do, it says Christian up there. Christian. They use filthy language over here. And this is Christian over here. Like, what is that? 
Some of those people are the same people that are going to say, Jesus, yes, but church, no. That's the hip thing to say. A lot of people say, Jesus, yes, church, no. Can I suggest a couple of things? One, one reason is because people are rebels at heart who don't want to be convicted. They don't want to yield their heart to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so they're going to take pot shots at, at the church and at, at God's Jesus' bride, who he loves. And he sees without spot or wrinkle. Another reason, and it is something that we have to hear, is because some of those people are hurt or they're disillusioned because they know so many people who claim to be Christians, but they don't do the things that Jesus said. Am I right? Talk to them, listen to them, be tough. Listen to their stories. Sometimes it's because they're rebels and and because they're trying to fight off submission to God. But other times it's because they've been hurt or disappointed or disillusioned by somebody who kind of got their stuff twisted and they weren't a good representative of Jesus. They They didn't look anything like the Sermon on the Mount. But if you meet people who look like the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus yes, it's church yes, both. It's happened here. It's happened here number of times I've talked with people who met folks from Evangel. I don't think we want to break our arms, patting ourselves on the back. Be careful about this. But I met folks from Evangel who are, who are consistent Christians, and so they sought out more truth about the faith. And we have folk in our services all the time who came with one of you because they saw Jesus in you. And I just want to commend you, and I want to encourage you, and I want to just push you in that same direction that you're leaning in, fuel that, fuel that fire and, and blow biblical truth on that fire that as we, as a means of evangelism, and a beautiful means of evangelism, as we become Christ-like by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we look like the Sermon on the Mount, most people who look at the Sermon on the Mount would go, I would love to meet somebody like that. I would like to live next door to somebody like that. I would like to play on the same football team as somebody like that. I would like to have somebody like that be my boss. I would like to have some employees like that. Amen? And what a powerful thing that we have in that. And now you know I have two more points, so let's get at them. Um, the kingdom, this is the second thing. The kingdom of heaven is not me getting what I want. It's doing what God wants. The kingdom righteousness is not doable, if you will. It's not human, it's, it's humanly impossible. It's not humanly possible. And I want to illustrate this from the Sermon on the Mount by pointing out something that's repeated over and over again. You'll, you're going to need help. You're gonna, that's an understatement. If you're going to look like the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to need help. That's an understatement. You're going to need help from God. You're going to need divine help. And, and, and this is interesting because true righteousness can't be reduced to a humanly doable code. And that's what they were doing, the Pharisees in particular. They, were, they kind of like extrapolated out a, a, a bigger code and they said, we're going to have a system that makes people keep all this stuff. We're going to watch over people. We're going to beat them down. We're going to organize this so that they have to keep this code. And Jesus is coming in and just blowing that away with his truth bazooka. And he's saying, there's no way that you can keep the law of a perfectly holy God with your little puny standards that you have set up here, which are kind of like twisted so that they miss all the stuff you like doing and hit all the stuff other people like doing. Now I'm preaching to the Baptist crowd here, folks. Let's hear it now. Come on, listen to this. You've got to take a good, solid look at your own life. And you, that's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, don't look at those Romans right now. I'm talking to you. His disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. And so we look at our own lives. And but this is interesting. So where do we get this help? 
According to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 in particular, and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where do we get this help? How does God paint this picture of where our help to be like him comes from? This is, I think, interesting, and I have loved this for all my life about the Sermon on the Mount. We get help from the Heavenly Father, and this is repeated over and over again. Let's take a look at our Bibles now. Notice this. I want to show you the occurrences of Father here. Look in chapter 5 and verse 48. Therefore, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Otherwise, they don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 4 of chapter 6. Your charitable deeds may be in secret, so your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In chapter uh, 6 and verse 6, talking about prayer. When you pray, go in your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Verse 8, your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. That's a sweet one right there. If I kind of belabored my messages today and you don't get anything from the message, tuck that one away really close to your heart. Your Father knows what you, what you need. Your Father knows what you need. I just love that. And when you pray, say, My Father, our Father, our Father, who is in heaven. Verse 9. Verse 14. Forgive, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father forgives you. Verse 15. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's interesting. Keep going. Verse 18. So that you do not appear. He's fasting. When you're fasting, so you don't appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in a secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Don't fast to be thought of as a spiritual person. Fast for your Father and and with a conscience of your Father's judge and your Father as the sustainer. In chapter 7, in verse 3, uh, sorry, I skipped one. Verse 32 of chapter 6, after all these things, the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Whatever it is you need tonight, your heavenly Father, he knows you need those things. Chapter 7, this is a secondary reference, but look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? That implies a common father, doesn't it? Do you like all the people sitting in this room? you like everybody here? You're thinking about it? You, you like it? Like, talk back to me. It's fun. You like them? You like these people? Kind of a little bit? How do you like people here a little bit? like them a lot? You love them fervently with a pure heart? <laughs> Am I irritating anybody? <laughs> you love them? Does anybody here ever bug you? You're looking at, why are you looking at me? <laughs> it's like, do people bug you? Do Christian people ever bother you? Of course you do. Because I know the answers to these questions. The answer to the first question is, yeah, I love them all. Yeah, they bug me. <laughs> They're just downright irritating sometimes. Here's the thing that helps. They're all your brothers and sisters. Just something to think about. They're your brothers and sisters. You have a common father. You just can't say, yeah, that's the, that's the kid in the family that we don't own. We just, like, kick him out. Father, check with the father on that. See what he has to say. See what the father says. He said, wait a minute, Ken, I didn't kick you out. And I got, a lo- I got a long list of good reasons I could have kicked you out. I could have given up on you a long time ago. And I don't expect you to give up on your brother or your sister either. 
So the next time you're kind of irritated with somebody that's a brother or, or that's a sister, you want to kind of kick them out again and give up on them or rough them up. Uh, just remember you have a common father. See, that's when it says brother. So it's the way you're looking at your brother and you're like, you see your sin is little and you see his sin is really big and your sin doesn't bother you much and his sin really bothers you a lot. It's like a log, you know, in the eye of being... Or how can you say to your brother, verse uh, 4, let me remove the speck from your eye when you've got a two-by-four in your eye, a plank in your eye. And then verse 11 of chapter 7, if, you listen, if you've been being evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Don't you just love that? That all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you can have God as your Father and so we think about that. We desire the reward of our Father. All these commands and all these demands are rooted in intimacy with a Father, with an ideal Father. We desire the reward of our Father. We live to please our Father. We're conscious of the judgment and the justice of our perfect Heavenly Father. We're confident that our Father knows our needs and He cares about us. We're aware that, we, that there are other children of our Father and we need salvation, so we come to the Father. And we need ongoing sanctification, and so we walk with the Father. We fellowship. We went to Mom and Dad's for kind of our holiday time. And my mother made chili. It was really good, just like she made when I was growing up. Just exactly like she made when I was growing up, and I liked it. Two girls in the world whose cooking I have... My tastes have gone toward their cooking. My mom and Lois. And she, Lois fixes something. She fixes stuff we like. Same with my mom, except for the chili tomato chunks. Other than that, tomatoes should be disguised and not chunky. That's what I'm saying, you know, in the chili. And But I've learned over the years that, especially at mom and dad's, you eat what's put before you. That's how I got where I am tonight. Eating before me. So, I, so at this time, I, I noticed um, Wes was kind of pinned back in the corner there, and he had a big bowl of tomato, chunky tomato-y chili in front of him, which I knew that he would not really want to eat. And uh, so I'm like, you know, it's one of those things like, don't hurt Grandma's feelings. And he's like, he's looking at me with desperation, like, you know, you're probably one of those people that says, we beat our children if they don't eat all their food because we want them to be healthy. It's kind of a logical inconsistency if you think about it. You, get them, you, you beat them. That, that, yeah, anyway. So, uh, end of the day, here's what happens. I'm watching this happen, and my dad has got Wesley closed in, so Wesley can't get out with the soup to make it look like he ate it. And my dad kind of looks over at me, and he smiles, and Wesley's like, <laughs> And my dad says, here, give me that. We'll, we'll take care of it. And he just kind of like made it disappear. It was gone. I didn't think much of it until we got in the car to go home. And we're driving down the road, and my, my son says, you're the best dad in the world. I'm like, I do. I really do. I really do. I can, I can remember so many nights of tenderness, love, kissing me goodnight, listening to me talk on and on, playing ping pong with me in the basement for hours and hours, and I could go on and on. You don't want to hear it. Had a good dad. My son called me every once in a while, the one who has kids. He says, hey, Dad, let me tell you what I did today, and he'll tell me something, and I'll smile. He'll say, you did that with me. I'm like, my dad did that with me. I didn't have any original ideas. I just did the stuff that my dad did with me. 
I know it's like for you tonight. Some of you that are ladies here tonight, you just don't have a memory of a good dad like that. It's just not a part of your memory. Jesus wants to introduce you to the ideal father. Some of you that are men, you, you don't have the memory of a benevolent, kind, loving father like that. Jesus wants to introduce you to the father that you've always wanted to be. And so when we struggle to tie our spiritual shoes, our Heavenly Father says, I never expected you to be able to do that. Let me help you. In a kind of a crude illustration. Here's the third thing. The kingdom of heaven is not me getting what I want. It's doing what He wants. The kingdom of heaven is not doable. It's humanly impossible. It's not human effort. It's divine enablement. And the kingdom of heaven is not just listening and making shallow promises, but it's practicing holiness. And this is a... This is what I said this morning. I told you this this morning. And that's based here, of course, on the whole sermon, but in particular how Jesus goes hard to the close and he basically kind of lays it out like, so what group are you in? Are you going down the narrow road to destruction? Are you going down the broad, going the Broadway with the few to eternal life? Are you building on a foundation that when the storm of judgment comes, it's going to be wiped away? Are you building on a foundation when the storm of judgment comes and it, you're going to be safe and warm and dry in the house? Which is it? It's one or the other. It's a beautiful sermon. I, I haven't done it justice. So read it on your knees. Ask God to make it true of you. Ask your Heavenly Father to make it true of you. It was in... Uh, Canada, and I've told you about this, but this is an exact place in Canada. It's um, a place on a, a difficult hike. They took us to this place, and, and they, they, they said uh, we, they weren't sure everybody was going to be able to get up to this place, but if everybody could get up to this place, then they would have a beautiful view. And we, and we hiked up this, and it was a heart-pounding, difficult hike. This is uh, near Jasper, Alberta, Canada, in the Canadian Rockies. And this is uh, called Old Fort Point. And so if you go, you ought to go up there. And this is the experience that I had. Once I got up there, the guide said, okay, we're going to wait. We're going to be quiet for a while. I'm like, that's really good because my heart is pounding so hard right now. I couldn't, couldn't speak, let alone you know, hear, you know, listen to anybody. So my heart stopped finally settled down after the, the difficult climb. And the students, they gathered around, and I remember standing up there and feeling a little bit like, what would it have been like to be in the out-of-doors at a high place with our master teacher, the Lord Jesus, and he opens his mouth and his disciples just hang on every word. And, and as I tried to speak the things of the Lord to the young people, they, they, uh, they had paid a lot of money to go on the trip. So they were all eager learners, they had their notebooks and their Bibles. They're just writing things down. And they were asking me questions because they had, cause I was from a long way away. You know, that's what an expert is, a guy who comes from a long way away. They were eager learners. They just had their notebooks out. They were just writing things down. And they were eager to, they were eager to uh, put them into practice. And I trust tonight that's true of you.